Welcome to the Vintners Podcast. Alex Zetrovich here, your host. And Vintners is a global online B2B platform designed to improve trade of craft wine between the growers, their importers and distributors, and professional wine buyers. Today, I am honored to interview my friend, Mackenzie Hoffman, who I've met years ago working at the Four Horsemen restaurant in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I was probably one of the first customers, and Mackenzie was always um, a great host. Welcome to the podcast. Wow, thank you so much. And you're never a customer to me. You're always a guest, Alex. Okay, that's that sounds good. Um, <laughs> Why don't you start with telling us your personal journey within wine uh, instead of me introducing you and, and describing everything you've done? I think it's better if you do it yourself. Sure. Um, I've I just turned 30, so it kind of hits this um, decade slash 12 years uh -oh. in food and <laughs> beverage slash wine, hospitality, et cetera. Um, I've always been obsessed with food and foodways. I grew up in Hudson Valley in New York, about 60 miles north of the city. And I went to NYU and studied nutrition and public health and food studies. And, you know, living in New York, being obsessed with people, being obsessed with food, Restaurants was a natural way to A, make money, B, have access to a lot of different people in different industries, um, you know, get better at just talking to people and um, having access to a lot of people because that's the best way to learn. And then ultimately wine was something that came about perhaps, I mean, shortly after I started working in restaurants. I was obsessed with Danny Meyer's idea of enlightened hospitality. And then shortly after I fell in love with wine, I kind of transitioned to natural wine because everybody was so obsessed with um, how the food was grown and nobody was really thinking about what was in their glass, whether it be beer, wine, or cocktail. Um, so then I kind of, transition to smaller kind of punk places, uh, Contra, Wild Air, Four Horsemen. Um, and then currently I live in Los Angeles, which is a huge change. Um, and we perhaps will get into that in a moment. For but sure. The trajectory was mostly just restaurants and I snapped my fingers 10 years later and now I'm fully ingrained in something that I didn't really know I would be 10 years ago. Okay. I definitely want to get get back to the um, LA wine scene or just restaurant scene versus New York. But before that, you mentioned uh, you were obsessed with Danny Meyer. So I, I just want to, um, if you can elaborate on that a little further. Yeah, sure. I think... Um, you know, setting the table and these ideas of hospitality as a career and, you know, the front of house and the way that the food is brought to the guest and um, the idea of like being empowered to educate the guest and kind of take them on a journey and a little bit, a little bit like control their experience. It was a powerful idea to me because being a person obsessed with educating. Um, he kind of gave him and his, you know, the whole, dare I say, corporate structure of it. It's really like ingraining these different tenants into you. Um, I use those tools as a way to teach people and ultimately um, take what I learned there and then brought it into natural wine and brought it into spaces where, you know, people don't necessarily know anything about those types of wines, different types of grapes, different methods of making wine, different countries that aren't necessarily, you know, the heavy hitters on normal wine lists. So I think as I got older and understood what was an important, um, important to me, I'm so glad that I, went through the fundamentals of 
restaurants and service before I kind of got really, really deep into something that um, is way more like it is, is way more nuanced, you know, agriculture, science, biology, et cetera, um, economy, business, all of those things that I'm now obsessed with. I don't think I would be able to be as successful if I didn't have the fundamentals of restaurant and service. Okay. That, that makes sense. And you started working at, uh, at a Danny Mayer restaurant or? Um, yeah, in college, I picked up his book. I don't remember where or how. Um, I think I was working at a restaurant that was run both front of house and back of house of like alumni of his group. So okay. you know, there was a part, there was a time in New York City where like everybody had familial ties to whether it be like uh, be our guest hospitality or the Daniel Balud family or Danny Meyer, everybody kind of like came from these bigger restaurant groups and mm -hmm. all this, you know, all this family tree action started happening. And then you had some sort of like cross pollination between restaurant groups with different views of food and hospitality and steps of service, et cetera. Like, you know, he, everybody in 11 Madison park has been kind of touched by him. So not to, uh, not to like sing one person's praises too much, but it's kind of important to see the lineage of restaurants in New York city, eighties, nineties into the two thousands. Um, and again, I don't want to get too much into LA, but um, that's something that I don't have here, which is, you know, maybe we can come back to it, but the historic story of restaurants in New York um, is extremely important to my trajectory in natural wine. Okay. Um, I, I think that all makes sense. And, and I mean, I can't really speak for LA because I've never lived there and I've only been there once in my life, uh, kind of early in the pandemic, which I don't think it really counts when it comes to hospitality. Mm -hmm. uh, but you moved to LA I believe in 2019, so about a little more than three years ago. Yeah. And um, can you tell me a little bit about the move? Like, why why did you decide to move? And um, and then we can get into how is uh, the industry different in LA versus New York? Sure. It kind of came down to wanting to stretch my perspective. I think New York is the best city in the entire universe <laughs> and being from New York and very much having like generational familial ties to the area. Um, I, I wanted to like kick myself in the ass and just get away and see, see what could happen. You know, our country is so very large and it kind of makes me emotional thinking about it, but New York, despite having access to everything, it really is a bubble. And I quickly learned that because, you know, 3,000 miles away, there's different communities, there's different ways of life, there's different um, just cycles of interacting with the earth and the world and people around you. Um, and natural wine and wine in general in California wildly different perspective. So I came here to open kind of an ambitious restaurant with two chefs, one from Mexico and one from LA. And um, unfortunately, it quickly dismantled because of COVID, but kind of a blessing in disguise. Um, I was, not to get too personal, but like I was traveling from East LA to Santa Monica by bus every day because I like refused to buy a car. Um, and it was fucking that, That's hard. a real New Yorker move. To yeah, I was a New York jerk. I played the comparison game like nonstop every day, all day. And I really was so headstrong. And I mean, I'm a very headstrong person. 
now that's slowly kind of like slipping away. But yeah, I, I had such a hard time transitioning and I'm glad again, that's exactly why I wanted to move right to kind of challenge myself in New York. I mean, the Mecca of the four horsemen, you have people walking in the door that want to talk about, you know, the different, the different plots in a very specific place in a very, um, esoteric way. And in LA, people are like, I'll take Pinot Noir. <laughs> so it was a, it was a very, uh, it was a very hard transition, but it's humbling and it's, um, you know, there's a lot of work to do, right? Like you're doing mega work in New York, but there's other places in the world that like, we need to be foot soldiers. Um, and I'm glad that I'm here and it's only just begun. Okay. And, and um, this, you said earlier, you mentioned that the, the way that people look at wine is wildly different than, than in New York. What, what did you mean by that? Maybe it has to do with um, a few things. I mean, just zooming out, you notice this about other industries as well. I, whether it be like literature or art or politics or architecture, you just don't have history here the same way you have history in New York. Um, I now allow myself to read fiction and I was trying to read books about LA and um, you know, you're, it's set in like the 1940s and that's very shallow to a New Yorker in terms of history, but to LA, you know, like we're talking about a hundred years being a city's lifetime versus like multiple hundreds of years. So I don't think that it's apt to just talk about wine when it comes to, you know, not really having a foothold. It's, it's just, it's just one thing that kind of is a reflection of um, like the youthfulness of the city in terms of uh, access, you know, in New York, not a lot of people that you meet on a daily basis are making wine. We have access to land and we have access to grapes and we have access to, winemakers here that you know isn't like New York so there's definitely like a more convivial spirit in terms of winemaking okay. um, however not grape growing for obvious reasons um, and then going back to like fundamentals when you consider sommeliers or wine professionals you definitely have a you have these polar opposite um, types of human beings. You know, you have the, the super, the super psalms um, that are, you know, coming from places like Wolfgang Puck and like, you know, Spago and these like really, these meccas of place and consumption, but not, not a lot on wine, right? Like people right. are wanting to, buy really expensive California Robert Parker era wines here just because that's all they have access to. And then in terms of like, you know, rock and roll psalms that are like obsessed with natural wine, they're much younger and not just in terms of age, but like they don't have those fundamentals because they didn't have access to it. You know, I, I worked under master psalms that would never give me the time of day in New York and then kind of just like got really hungry and uh you know ran off on my own wooded path but here I don't think that you can dip your toes into whether it be wine service at a restaurant or dip your toes into um you know, drinking wine when the dollar signs are super high. 
so there's there's a little bit of this fractured idea of what wine is and can be in a way that I didn't quite see in New York. I mean, I also like thought about it a little bit and um, I would, I would even take a step back in going back to this, to the style of, of living in, in LA, like, again, not an expert on LA, but my feeling when I was there was that LA is, more like a region where you have like 10 different towns that are connected by large highways and people kind of constantly drive everywhere. Mm -hmm. So a, like the driving is not very friendly when you want to drink. <laughs> totally. totally. And, and B um, I feel like, you know, sometimes if you live, as you said earlier, like you were taking a bus and probably take a while. Um, it took a while to get to, to work. Like, if you have to drive for 45 minutes to an hour to get to a restaurant, it's you're probably not going to do it as often as if, you know, when I lived five blocks away from the Four Horsemen and I was there every single day, pretty much. Um, so my point being, like, do you also think that that it's that it's also like just the nature of the city itself that is that is causing the, this uh, this difference and people being a little less involved in the wine industry? Absolutely. I mean, my consumption has plummeted since moving here. Um, I mean, you also started eating breakfast, which is... I know, I eat breakfast. We're in the land of breakfast and lunch and like, I don't really drink wine but before the sun goes down. So um, just in terms of consumption, yes, everybody... Uh, but, but that being said, maybe it's just I'm living in a box because you know, I, I buy a lot of wine for guests to drink. So yes and no. Um, I think food is a really interesting thing to think about here because we have, act and, you know, and related to, to wine, we have access to incredible food. I go to the farmer's market every Sunday, um, but I still see like the Cisco truck driving up and down sunset dropping off just crap food at places you know i have people asking me about um oh yeah like i want to i want to get into natural wine and sometimes i like don't even talk to them about wine i talk to them about food i'm like well what did you eat for breakfast like what did you eat today just to kind of gauge the way that they think of agricultural products because it's so much easier to, from, it's so much e easier to argue with, not argue, but like, you know, talk about an ethos of food and wine, but food first, you know, kind of getting a, an understanding of how a person values where something's coming from and how something is being grown. Um, and a little bit more holistic idea because natural wine in LA is a little bit of a meme it's not necessarily something that um, consumers are thinking about the process of it. And I don't, I, I don't know why. I don't know why. Is it LA? Is it post-COVID? Is it this Instagram culture? I'm not quite sure. Um, there's been, you know, people have been talking about it a lot. Um, but just last week, I saw somebody, a winemaker in California, post about... Um, you know, the fact that he wants to get back into growing grapes and farming, but he admitted nobody gives a shit, you know, nobody even cares if there's a disconnect between grape grower and winemaker. Do you, from your perspective in New York, have you been seeing that happening? I mean, a lot of more people are growing, you know, making natural wine and you're probably getting it over there, but are people even talking about who's growing the grapes and who's not growing the grapes, but in specifically in natural wine in California that you're seeing come to New York? Um, I have to admit that I don't drink that, that much California wine. Yeah. Uh, so, so I don't discuss it as often, but um, I think the people that I speak to uh, normally are interested uh, in the fact wh whether the, the winemaker is also the grower. 
uh, or they just buy grapes or or whatever the the story is. Um, and you know, we see that a lot in negotiants in Europe. You know, like it's it's harder and harder to have good yields and yields and have good harvests, and you need to supplement, you know, your your growing with other just to have access and just to like, you know, keep your business running. Um, and, you know, th this also has to do with land access and, you know, not a lot of people can just own land in California, blah, 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 blah. I don't want to really like harp on the regurgitated themes that we all know. Um, but just in terms of consumption, because I work in the hospitality space and that's extremely important to me, I think that one of the major issues about California when it comes or like LA when it comes to natural wine consumption is a lot of us are not working in consumption spaces. You know, all of the people that I am friends with, not a lot of them work in restaurants and not a lot of them work in bars. A lot of people are reps. A lot of people work on the distribution side and that terrifies me because it all goes back to educating your guests. You know, if you have such a disconnect between putting the wine in their mouths, yep. then it's, it's really hard to educate and it's really hard to remind someone that this is an agricultural product. So that is, that's a huge, huge um, question mark in my brain. And we know that each part of the, each part of the, you know, the distribution chain is really important, but I fear that there's not a lot of people in hospitality spaces and that is definitely going to, um, you know, deprive our ability to teach. And I think that's, that's the one thing that I feel the most strongly about um, in this like LA versus New York. A lot of people have a healthier way of life. A lot of people go to bed, you know, kitchens close earlier and I totally get it. I totally understand living a more sustainable life, but where are all my restaurant homies at? Where are all my 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 left, hospitality professionals left them in new york <laughs> i know i know there's some incredible people here but i'm sure uh, you know you just went to babo babo is a place that i've been going to sitting at the bar for the past 12 years and the same bartender who i'm absolutely smitten with i <laughs> sit with him for 12 years like since i was in college and i cannot wait to go back and see him every single time. That's crazy. And yeah, there's definitely veterans in this city as well, but specifically in natural wine, it's really hard to, um, to be like, I want to, I want to be hosted by my friend and I want to see what they have to offer, um, in terms of like what's new on their wine list. There are just a handful of people that I engage with here, um, and I admit, like, maybe I'm not doing the work and going to a lot of restaurants, but um, there's definitely this idea that being a hospitality professional is not an enlightened step of the, you know, step of the process. Um, yeah, it, it makes me it makes me really sad because I I wonder if there's something to do with just the idea that LA is for show business and it's that classic idea that you're only working in consumption spaces to pay the bills for your other passion, right? Like how cliche is that? People still ask me, "Oh, are you an actress? Oh, are you a I don't know, a writer and uh right. They don't just, they don't believe that, that this can be a career. I just giggle. Yeah, I giggle. Um because it very much is my career. And well, you're uh, also very eloquent, so maybe that's why they think you're a writer, you know. Oh gross. 
But that brings me to uh to 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 the fact that you told me that you have your own personal definition of what hospitality is. And I am curious to to learn this definition. Did I really? Um oh well I mean I guess it was something that yeah we always talk about. I I think it's the the mixture of that um It's more the idea of this enlightened hospitality is something that for me is something that is all about education and all about honestly just creating community and nothing about natural wine. I mean, I am like dogmatically green in a lot of ways, but professionally speaking, I really like to focus on education and community building and trust and respect because those are the things that are most sustainable for me um when it just comes to human to human right like wine is something that might go away in the near future but we're not going anywhere and it's so important for me to you know whether it be connect connect people with mentors or try to get people in the right jobs. Um, hospitality is not something that I just offer guests. I truly offer it to my friends. And, you know, maybe that sounds really hokey, but I think that this virtuous cycle of hospitality in our lives and like away from natural wine is disastrously important both for our, our mental health and also just like our happiness, <laughs> as lame as that sounds. Um, okay. But to kind of, to kind of bring it back to wine, um, there are two, there are two things that I tried to accomplish. At, um, so after I was the wine director and wine buyer at um, this place in Echo Park called El Prado for the past almost two years Um, I recently left to work on something else, which I'm really excited about. But two of the things that I did there, which I am super proud of, and I think that's it's really important, is A, kind of bringing back this idea of a house wine and always offering a $10 glass of wine for red and for white and for orange. Um, that's $10 tax included. And that was a huge part of my definition of hospitality. And these aren't swill wines. They're not conventional wines. They're natural wines that we were able to serve. And, you know, when's the last time you, when's the last time you drank a glass of wine for $10 tax included, Alex? Well, in Europe, you can do it. But in New York. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, that. Totally. I'm, I I think a lot of times I just like opt out for getting a bottle, but because by the time I drank I two glasses of wine, I already spent like 50, 60 bucks. So might totally. as well just get a bottle for 100, 120 bucks. Totally. And, you know, absolutely. But I noticed that like a lot of people were engaging with the buy the glass program and that it, it was kind of like the return of the buy the glass. I, I'm like vehemently a proponent of the return to the buy of the glass growing, growing up like over the past 10 years, you wouldn't catch me. You wouldn't catch me drinking anything by the glass. You know, if I like walked into a restaurant, admit it, like all of us, like all of us would just stick our noses up at by the glass programs. Right. Um, and it's so funny when like, You know, you hang out with wine professionals and they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to get a bottle of wine. Well, we talked about the consumption plummeting in our own. Well, in my life, it's plummeted. And maybe I just want to buy the glass. And I mean, so many I, times I just want to buy the glass. But yeah, there's nothing to drink. Right. Or or just economically makes more sense to get a whole sure. bottle. Sure, sure. Um But it was, it's really important to me that, especially in Los Angeles, where people might not be drinking that much, that 
you, you focus more on by the glass and you take more risks with by the glass. And, you know, last night I went to an incredible restaurant in um, like Chinatown area called La Cita. It's a Filipino restaurant. It's incredible. Yes, I got a bottle of wine, but most times I go there, I'll just get a, a glass of wine because incredible by the glass options. Um, there's a new wine bar that opened um, from a retail team. They are offering great by the glass options. So that's something that I think is my version of hospitality is creating systems and restaurants that offer offer new um, new practices. Another thing is like um, kind of with this allocation game, saying, you know what, if you're not going to allocate me the wines, it's my job to find producers that nobody else knows. You, you, Alex, if you come into my space and you look at the wine list and you don't recognize like a lot of wines, that would be incredible. And also you probably would be confused, wouldn't you? That's something that like, um, again, going to shit on myself eight <laughs> years ago, if I walked into a restaurant and like didn't recognize um, wines on the wine list, I'd be like, oh my God, like what's going on? Like, what is this? Yeah. It's so polarizing, but to flip that on its head, um, I want to offer my wine people wines that they've never had. That's so exciting. And like, isn't that the entire point? Um, I, think, I, think, I think that's awesome. And it reminds me of uh, when I first really started liking sake. Um, I was in Kyoto and I walked into a sake bar where there were only eight seats, even though the space could have fit probably like New York standards, 30 tables. Yes, yes. Uh, but the whole idea that the guy had behind the bar was to engage with with the the guests. Right. And so he only limited himself to eight seats because he couldn't give more time um, to more than more people than that. Right. So. But it was it was so great because I walked in and I was with with a with a friend of mine and neither of us really knew much about sake. So, you know, we were kind of in this guy's hands, like whatever he served me and told me I was going to maybe research later. But at that point, like I was just going to like listen to him. So and it, it ended up being an incredible experience. Um, so you mentioning this, I, I think. Yes, I would probably be scared, but um, if if I kind of like noticed that the wines were made in styles and with with the passion that I normally look for in wine, I think I would be very open and and probably would end up being extremely happy coming out of there, even if I maybe didn't really enjoy the wines as much. At least I would feel like richer for the experience and more knowledge that I gained from the experience. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a testament to your taste and your reaction to wine, you know, like I can say confidently that I know a lot of producers, we all know a lot of producers, but the best, the best thing that I get to do now, um, which kind of continues my own education and continues my own learning is to assess a wine just by the way that it smells and it tastes and not really ask the story of how many hectares do they farm? How many hectares are under vine? Who the hell cares? Because the way that I'm going to react to the wine and if I enjoy it and if it smells alive and you can assess it, you know, is this balanced? Is it aromatically like it, it sound? Is it just like, does it move you? it's really fun to just be triggered on this visceral level because all of the preciousness of knowing what the horse, what the horse's name that plows the fields, you know, that doesn't really matter to me anymore. And I bring up the horses because ask me eight years ago, what their horses names were. I could tell you the horses names. That's not, that's not in my notebooks anymore. Right. 
the only thing that I'm looking for is, you know, does this move me and will this move the guest? Because the guests are not obsessed with trophy chasing the way that maybe some people in New York are. There's a lot of people that are just looking for a good time. And I want to take away the preciousness of, you know, wine a little bit. Am I doing that? I don't know. It's. Does that mean that some highly allocated wines that in New York go for prices that are just insane <laughs> uh, are a little more accessible in LA in terms of price? No, no I wouldn't say that at all. The, the wines that are allocated are all going to be allocated. It's a disastrous problem to be told that you're given two bottles of wine. What the hell am I going to do with two bottles of wine? They're coming home with me and I'm going to drink them. So that's why I look towards finding new producers. Um, there's a guy who is Swiss and he represents a lot of great Swiss producers. These are all wines that I have no history with and have no practice with. And recently I committed to buying all the wine from this one producer, one cuvee to pour by the glass. And that like rocked my small world because. Do you want to tell us who the producer is? Well, it's, I would, Dan Hess is the distributor of Swiss wines. Um, and he was recently uh, featured in, I think it was a 750 article about Swiss wines and our access to them now um and you know he's bringing in producers that like i said we don't really have a history with so it's really excellent to assess them by his perspective but also your like unadulterated view of how they're smelling and how they're tasting and how they're making you feel and that's really cool and when you offer them on a wine list and you know your wine friends may not have heard of the producer, but really, really like the right, like the wine um, that rules. I'll give you another example. Um, my friend Gino, he and I um, connected when I first moved to LA because I was building out a bar program that was heavily focused on agave spirits. Um, and he taught me so much about agave and so much about Mexico and so much about mezcal. And he started his own importing and distribution company. And he got, um, he got access to wines that were not distributed in California. And he was like, Mackenzie, I trust your taste. You got to taste these with me. What do you think? And I did my homework and researched the winemakers and researched the you know importers that were in other parts of the country and we drank them and I was like these rule the domain name it translates to the tendril and the butterfly and it was a viognier viognier as a grape like yeah oh it's like you know someone tells you their favorite grape is viognier and you wonder what the hell's wrong with them but <laughs> It was this like kind of, um, it kind of had this Burgundian reductive tech like quality to it on the nose and texturally it was like crunchy yet oily and it just hung in your mouth and it was just so delicious. And he was like, I have five cases of it. And I'm like, great, I'll take them all. And that one was not in California at all, except at El Prado bar. And, um, you know, wine friends would come in and they'd be like, what should I drink? And I'm like, oh, I have this great white by the glass. It's Viognier. And they'd be like, what the hell is wrong with you? And then I would pour that for them and they'd be like, this is so good. So it's just those like small moments. And maybe it's because my I'm just hanging out with myself too much, but that's what really gets me going in in my small wine world here. I I I like I like doing that too. Um 
I, I kind of find that a lot of times if you want to introduce um, people in the wine industry to something new, you have to pour it blind uh, <laughs> for them to really admit that they like it. Um, but um, I wanted to get into um, something that you call the Stone Soup series. <laughs> yeah. Um, because... I don't really know what it is, and I'm really curious to find out, but I've seen it on your Instagram many times. So, so yeah, I think it, it just, it kind of came about in my brain um, from my desire to, like, create community. Um, I don't have friends in L.A. that you know, get together and talk about the nuances of Solera systems in Champagne. So I had to kind of look for pleasure elsewhere. <laughs> so I wanted to create these events slash just like parties or um, just community building experiments that involve people in other industries. So the first one uh, was with a good friend of mine, his name's Daniel, and he used to own a restaurant in Toronto. And he used to be like a super buttoned up Sam in a suit that was in food and beverage and kind of got disillusioned. Um, and I was like, you like pottery? Just go for it. Let's let's throw a party. So it's, it was as simple as that. I commissioned him to make a couple hundred wine glasses out of clay. And then we just hosted a party and all of the wines were vinified in amphora. And to Mackenzie in New York, I'd be like, that's so boring. <laughs> but, you know, now it's like, no, that's so special. The simplicity of it, like the magic of it is about the simplicity. I got to put a few thousand bucks in a artist's pocket and I got to have some great people come together and drink clay fermented wine out of clay vessels. And that was so much fun. A lot of the people were not in wine, you know, like 75% of the people not in wine that were just, you know, now they know that wine can be aged in clay. That's so fun. That's really simple. There were people there that I've never met before. That's so much fun too. I was like, oof, talk about butterflies that I was getting so emotional that's that's what I'm like that's what hits me nowadays the fact that people can just enjoy each other and wine is like supplemental we don't have to get together around a dinner table um and just talk about what's in our glasses right like that's that's cool and that there's a time and place for that I guess but there's so much more to learn about each other and there's so much more to kind of tap into when it comes to different people and different passions. So this is something that I hope to do a few times a year. Um, there, then there's a few in the works having to do with um, a, a CalArts student that works a lot in sculpture, there's one in the works from a florist that um, it's so fun. We're, we're kind of thinking about doing um, like take home tea that involves like biodynamic tinctures and she's a florist. Um, and that was really special. It also is a way for people to kind of tap into the quote unquote art world and have an opportunity to bring home an art piece. So at the volume with Daniel, everybody got to bring home the vessel. And that's really important to me that people can kind of like access worlds that they don't think that they might have access to just because of money. Um, so that was really important to me. 
two. Maybe I, you'll come to the next one. Yeah, maybe. Um, I I think, I don't know. I mean, you say uh, New York U wouldn't have done this, but I think this whole series is very you. Um, it kind of like, I always associate you with combining art and wine. Um, and then some other things that, that I've discussed with you that I also associated with you and, and wine, it, they're basically, I mean, we've, we've talked so much about climate crisis in the past, you and I, uh, but also like just mindfulness, sustainability. I think, I think this is something that you talk about a lot in hospitality, inclusivity as well. Um, I just want to talk about all this before I let you go as the last topic of this episode. So I want to hear your thoughts. <laughs> oh, man, it's. Uh, yeah, I, I think if I were to. If I were to define what is important about the way that I look at wine now is that it's, it's actually not my focus anymore. Um, I remember like living on the Lower East Side and on my day off, I would go to Discovery Wines and I would buy a bottle of wine and I would figure out what country it was from and then trace maps and drink the wine for the next three hours. And I still have like my notebooks and my map drawings and my flashcards and you know I'm I'm so grateful for that part of wine and that part of my life where I could just spit all these facts at you and I'm always so fact-based and oh you can't name all the Grand Cru's in that area like poo-poo on you like you're you gotta get with it but now I'm just like, what the heck was I doing? I mean, granted, I, I really like doing that, but it's not about that anymore for me. Um, inclusivity is not only inclusivity of the type of wine that I'm drinking and inclusivity of the people that I'm surrounding myself with. Um, it's It's also this idea of, you know, inclusivity with yourself and kind of figuring out what is sustainable within yourself before you figure out what's sustainable outside of yourself, right? Like you and I met so many years ago and our friendship has sustained through like not talking to each other for months on end, but knowing that we were there for each other a bottle of wine is not going to be there for me. Like you, Alex, my friend <laughs> is going to be there for me. So just trying to kind of bounce back and like look at the world in a little bit more macro and mindful sense. Um, I don't know if this is, uh, this is the, <laughs> the Vintner's content that everybody is <laughs> looking I, I, for. I think, I think uh, wh whatever is authentic to you is Vintner's content. So, so no worries. Um, but I, I do want to touch on the climate crisis and, and uh, um, kind of, I want to hear your thoughts, um, how it relates to like the business and hospitality Um everything i think this is a is a, a big topic important topic and i think you do have some thoughts that are uh interesting to share sure um wine makers are killing themselves wine is a is a agricultural product that's coming from a resource that's finite I I don't think it is sustainable that all of these people are making wine. I mean, right? Like just think back, about bottles. For yeah, example. bottles, corks, labels. Um, 
at El Prado, we were pouring wine out of like bladder bags and wine out of um, kegs. You know, Philippe Brand was bottling, like bagging his bag in box. And that was our house $10 wine that I couldn't be more proud of. Um, so it, as a finite resource, I think a lot of people have to figure out where they're going to put their energy and what they're going to value. If somebody, I, I just think there are too many accountants that got bored during COVID, bought a bunch of grapes and sent it to a custom crush facility to make wine. That sucks. <laughs> <laughs> like that's not something that I really want to support. It is important that that those people like know where wine is coming from and that's so special, but I guess that's why I'm focused more on all of the tertiary things when it comes with to wine, like hospitality and community building, because if I'm going to be earth first, I need to be realistic about it. So um, in the new cafe that I'm opening, we're not going to have a long wine list because I don't think it's that sustainable to build a business and build community surround like all surrounding a wine program that is going to harness stars and harness awards. There was a time and place for that. I mean, the four horsemen, how cool Michelin star James Beard award. That is incredible. And that is so powerful. And there's so much magic surrounding that accomplishment and everyone who has touched that restaurant, whether it be employees or, get, or guests. So, so cool. 10 years from now, I'm not quite sure if a Mecca of a wine list like that will exist, can exist simply because of the finite nature of wine. I don't know. Everyone is opening up a wine shop. It's fracturing our ability to access wines. You know, 10 more businesses means that you're sharing access with 10 other buyers. That's, yeah, A, super frustrating, but not sustainable to hospitality in general, not sustainable for your guests, and certainly not sustainable for you. I will not engage with wine distributors that release their books on a drop of a dime and say, all right, write me an email. Like whoever gets it, gets it. That's such, it's such a way to polarize people, to polarize buyers. It's not doing anybody a favor but you know what? This is the rat race that everybody is engaging in, but I don't want to engage in that. And I think that's the most sustainable way to both practice, you know, being sustainable in terms of being green, of course, being dogmatic when it comes to being green, of course, but in terms of buying, we have to have we have to kind of figure figure out how we're going to do it long term. When it comes to growing grapes, dogma has to change too. I think Mindclang is a really incredible example of this. Recently, I feel like they uh, transitioned to mechanical harvest, which is not allowed under Demeter certification. So you're, you're talking about a group of people that were so influential in promoting biodynamics, not only in Austria and Hungary, but in the entire world. And here they are trying to be realistic, be hospitable to both land and consumers and having a little bit of pliancy to change their ways in order to be more sustainable with time. Does that make sense? It makes sense. I, I think uh, another topic that we hear a lot is when it comes to organic farming is, is uh, spraying of copper 
and how mm -hmm. copper never goes away from the soil and, and stuff like this. And, and you hear stories about um, producers and growers who just opt out to like leave the organic certification because they don't want to use copper. And they think that certain artificial sprays are actually doing less harm um, mm. than, than, than organic spraying. I mean, you know, this is, this is, we don't, we don't have to take stance right now, but uh, these are, these are the, the topics that I think are coming up more and more in the last year or two. Totally. I mean, 10 years ago, I, I wrote this like defiant note in my computer, how loot resin A was bullshit. And the reason struggle was bullshit. If you really wanted to be a dogmatic farmer, you would do X, Y, and Z always, no matter what, blah, blah, blah. But again, sustainability has everything to do with people and consumption as it does with wine. So if we are super dogmatic and following these, you know, tenants, following your tenants, super important. But if we're holding these winemakers too accountable, I think that we're going to kick ourselves in the ass a little bit. You know, we've, I'm sure that winemakers, I mean, let's think of an example. When you and I were traveling together in Austria, you always kind of hear winemakers and like they hold their cards so close to their chest because they don't want to re reveal something at the wrong moment to the wrong person in terms of having to put more sulfur at this stage during the winemaking process. And, you know, that's not community building, that's not hospitality, that's not sustainability. So the judgment, whether it be the judgment that you don't have an allocated wine on your wine list or a, the judgment of, oh, that person put a little bit more sulfur in the soup this time around, I think that we're just going to have to be a little bit more kind to one another. And then that's going to yield us being a little bit more kind to the earth. But I don't know. I'm a happy person, but I'm also realistic. So it all can go to shit really easily too, right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I totally agree. Well, thank you for answering these hard questions. Um, and I just, before I let you go, this is your opportunity to give a shout out to a business that uh -huh. that offered you a great wine experience <laughs> this year. I mean, it's almost New Year's, so I feel like I would I would like to hear what what was what was this experience? Okay, um, you can pick only one. <laughs> come on. Well, I am gonna tell you what I'm excited for next year because I think that will also give some shout outs. Okay. Um, number one, I am extremely honored and excited to join Terrestrial in France in February. Joe Hirsch um, and Jacob that I work with from Terrestrial, they're doing an incredible job. It kind of is a great example of producers that I really didn't have any experience with and kind of just like um, authentically judging them and hearing their stories from Jacob and Joe. And I give them a shout out completely. Their producers have like, been so so exciting to get to learn about um so shout out to them and also they're a small business you know whenever I hang out with Joe it's I almost get I I get more excited learning about like shipping dynamics than I do about wine sometimes because you know he's he's being challenged with being a small business with fuel surcharges and that mumbo jumbo. So shout out to him. Um, shout out to uh, Chris Rollins and Lizzie who opened a wine bar in Charleston. Um, they are incredibly kind human beings that I met years and years and years ago at the Four Horsemen. And I'm going to 
do a pop-up with them in March for Charleston Food and Wine Festival. I'm so pumped about what they're offering to Charleston. Talk about like kindness and hospitality and just like a fun party and um, giving more accessibility to wine in a really unprecious way. Shout out. And then finally, shout out to my business partners, um, Macklin Kaznoff, him and I, along with um, our other partner, Harley, we're opening a cafe in a few months. Um, Macklin just released an apple juice and I couldn't be more proud of him. He um, worked with some apple growers in Vermont and New York and he has goals of incentivizing farmers to have better growing practices with apples and orchard fruits. Incredible. So shout out to Macklin. We, um, you'll soon be able to visit us at our new home that will never leave. And I'll probably sleep on the banquettes at night. So, <laughs> All right. I, I'm excited about those things. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for, for doing this and taking the time. And um, hopefully I'll be able to come to LA and check out this new business venture of yours. Yeah, duh. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. That is it for this episode of the Witness Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope that you can listen to the rest of our episodes and will listen to our future episodes in the new year. Happy holidays, everyone.